Section 33 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tad Davis. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Masfen Roberts. Book 5, Chapters 43-55 to 55. Chapter 43 Unsuccessful Attack on the Citadel For some days the Gauls had been making useless war merely upon the houses of the city. Now that they saw nothing surviving amidst the ashes and ruin of the captured city, except an armed foe whom all these disasters had failed to appall, and who would entertain no thought of surrender unless force were employed, they determined as a last resort to make an assault on the citadel. At daybreak the signal was given, and the whole of their number formed up in the forum. Raising their battle-shout and locking their shields together over their heads, they advanced. The Romans awaited the attack without excitement or fear. The detachments were strengthened to guard all the approaches, and in whatever direction they saw the enemy advancing, there they posted a picked body of men and allowed the enemy to climb up, for the steeper the ground they got onto, the easier they thought it would be to fling them down the slope. About midway up the hill, the Gauls halted. Then, from the higher ground, which of itself almost hurled them against the enemy, the Romans charged and routed the Gauls with such loss and overthrow that they never again attempted that mode of fighting, either with detachments or in full strength. All hope, therefore, of forcing a passage by direct assault being laid aside, they made preparations for a blockade. Up to that time they had never thought of one. All the corn in the city had been destroyed in the conflagrations, whilst that in the fields around had been hastily carried off to Vi since the occupation of the city. So the Gauls decided to divide their forces. One division was to invest the citadel, the other to forage amongst the neighboring states so that they could supply corn to those who were keeping up the investment. Camillus at Ardea. It was Fortune herself who led the Gauls after they left the city to Ardea that they might have some experience of Roman courage. Camillus was living there as an exile, grieving more over his country's fortunes than his own, eating his heart out in reproaches to gods and men, asking in indignant wonder where the men were with whom he had taken Vi and Falerii men whose valor in all their wars was greater even than their success. Suddenly he heard that the Gaulish army was approaching, and that the Ardiates were engaged in anxious deliberation about it. He had generally avoided the council meetings, but now, seized with an inspiration, nothing short of divine, he hastened to the assembled councillors and addressed them as follows. Chapter 44 Men of Ardea, friends of old, and now my fellow citizens, for this your kindness has granted, this my fortunes have compelled, let none of you imagine that I have come here in forgetfulness of my position. 
Note, as a refugee, he did not possess full civic rights and had, therefore, no place in their assembly. End of note. The force of circumstances and the common danger constrain every man to contribute what help he can to meet the crisis. When shall I ever be able to show my gratitude for all the obligations you have conferred if I fail in my duty now? When shall I ever be of any use to you if not in war? It was by that that I held my position in my native city as having never known defeat. In times of peace my ungrateful countrymen banished me. Now the chance is offered to you, men of Ardea, of proving your gratitude for all the kindness that Rome has shown you. You have not forgotten how great it is, nor need I bring it up against those who so well remember it. The chance of winning for your city a vast reputation for war at the expense of our common foe. Those who are coming here in loose and disorderly fashion are a race to whom nature has given bodies and minds distinguished by bulk rather than by resolution and endurance. It is for this reason that they bring into every battle a terrifying appearance rather than real force. Take the disaster of Rome as a proof. They captured the city because it lay open to them. A small force repelled them from the citadel and capital. Already the irksomeness of an investment has proved too much for them. They are giving it up and wandering through the fields in straggling parties. When they are gorged with food and the wine they drink so greedily, they throw themselves down like wild beasts on the approach of night in all directions by the streams without entrenching themselves or setting any outposts or pickets on guard. And now, after their success, they are more careless than ever. If it is your intention to defend your walls and not to allow all this country to become a second Gaul, seize your arms and muster in force by the first watch and follow me to what will be a massacre, not a battle. If I do not deliver them, whilst enchained by sleep into your hands to be slaughtered like cattle, I am ready to accept the same fate in Ardea which I met with in Rome. Chapter 45 Reverses of the Gauls and Etruscans Friends and foes were alike persuaded that nowhere else was there at that time so great a master of war. After the council broke up, they refreshed themselves and waited eagerly for the signal to be given. When it was given in the silence of the night, they were at the gates ready for Camillus. After marching no great distance from the city, they came upon the camp of the Gauls, unprotected, as he had said, and carelessly open on every side. They raised a tremendous shout and rushed in. There was no battle. It was everywhere sheer massacre. The Gauls, defenseless and dissolved in sleep, were butchered as they lay. Those in the furthest part of the camp, however, startled from their lairs and not knowing whence or what the attack was, fled in terror, and some actually rushed unawares amongst their assailants. A considerable number were carried into the neighborhood of Antium, where they were surrounded by the townsmen. A similar slaughter of Etruscans took place in the district of Vi. So far were these people from feeling sympathy with the city, which for almost four centuries had been their neighbor, and was now crushed by an enemy never seen or heard of before, that they chose that time for making forays into Roman territory, and after loading themselves with plunder, intended to attack Vi, the bulwark and only surviving hope of the Roman name. 
The Roman soldiers at Vi had seen them disperse through the fields, and afterwards, with their forces collected, driving their booty in front of them. Their first feelings were those of despair, then indignation and rage took possession of them. Are even the Etruscans, they exclaimed, from whom we have diverted the arms of Gaul onto ourselves to find amusement in our disasters? With difficulty they restrained themselves from attacking them. Cadicius, a centurion whom they had placed in command, induced them to defer operations till nightfall. The only thing lacking was a commander like Camillus. In all other respects, the ordering of the attack and the success achieved were the same as if he had been present. Not content with this, they made some prisoners who had survived the night's massacre act as guides, and, led by them, surprised another body of Tuscans at the salt works and inflicted a still greater loss upon them. Exultant at this double victory, they returned to Vi. Chapter 46. Camillus Appointed Dictator During these days there was little going on in Rome. The investment was maintained, for the most part, with great slackness. Both sides were keeping quiet, the Gauls being mainly intent on preventing any of the enemy from slipping through their lines. Suddenly a Roman warrior drew upon himself the admiration of foes and friends alike. The Fabian house had an annual sacrifice on the Quirinal, and Gaius Fabius Dorsuo, wearing his toga in the Gabine cincture and bearing in his hands the sacred vessels, came down from the capital, passed through the middle of the hostile pickets, unmoved by either challenge or threat, and reached the Quirinal. Note. In the Gabine cincture, the loose flowing toga was gathered up and wound round the body, allowing freer movement for the limbs. It was adopted in certain cults, especially those which were accompanied by marches and solemn dances. End of note. There he duly performed all the solemn rites and returned with the same composed expression and gait, feeling sure of the divine blessing, since not even the fear of death had made him neglect the worship of the gods. Finally he re-entered the capital and rejoined his comrades. Either the Gauls were stupefied at his extraordinary boldness, or else they were restrained by religious feelings, for as a nation they are by no means inattentive to the claims of religion. At Vi there was a steady accession of strength as well as courage. Not only were the Romans who had been dispersed by the defeat and the capture of the city gathering there, but volunteers from Latium also flocked to the place that they might be in for a share of the booty. The time now seemed ripe for the recovery of their native city out of the hands of the enemy. But though the body was strong, it lacked a head. The very place reminded men of Camillus. The majority of the soldiers had fought successfully under his auspices and leadership, and Cadicius declared that he would give neither gods nor men any pretext for terminating his command. He would rather himself, remembering his subordinate rank, ask for a commander-in-chief. It was decided by general consent that Camillus should be invited from Ardea, but the Senate was to be consulted first. To such an extent was everything regulated by reverence for law. The proper distinctions of things were observed, even though the things themselves were almost lost. 
Frightful risk would have to be incurred in passing through the enemy's outposts. Pontius Cominius, a fine soldier, offered himself for the task. Supporting himself on a cork float, he was carried down the Tiber to the city. Selecting the nearest way from the bank of the river, he scaled a precipitous rock which, owing to its steepness, the enemy had left unguarded and found his way into the capital. On being brought before the supreme magistrates, he delivered his instructions from the army. After receiving the decree of the Senate, which was to the effect that after being recalled from exile by the Comitia Curiata, Camillus should be forthwith nominated dictator by order of the people, and the soldiers should have the commander they wanted. The messenger returned by the same route and made the best of his way to Vi. A deputation was sent to Ardea to conduct Camillus to Vi. The law was passed in the Comitia Curiata, annulling his banishment and nominating him dictator, and it is, I think, more likely that he did not start from Ardea until he learnt that this law had been passed, because he could not change his domicile without the sanction of the people, nor could he take the auspices in the name of the army until he had been duly nominated dictator. Chapter 47 Unsuccessful Attack on the Capital Marcus Manlius while these proceedings were taking place at Vi, the citadel and capital of Rome were in imminent danger. The Gauls had either noticed the footprints left by the messenger from Vi, or had themselves discovered a comparatively easy ascent up the cliff to the Temple of Carmentus. Choosing a night when there was a faint glimmer of light, they sent an unarmed man in advance to try the road, then handing one another their arms where the path was difficult, and supporting each other or dragging each other up as the ground required, they finally reached the summit. So silent had their movements been that not only were they unnoticed by the sentinels, but they did not even wake the dogs, an animal peculiarly sensitive to nocturnal sounds. But they did not escape the notice of the geese, which were sacred to Juno, and had been left untouched in spite of the extremely scanty supply of food. This proved the safety of the garrison, for their clamor and the noise of their wings aroused Marcus Manlius, the distinguished soldier, who had been consul three years before. He snatched up his weapons and ran to call the rest to arms, and while the rest hung back, he struck with the boss of his shield a Gaul who had got a foothold on the summit and knocked him down. He fell on those behind and upset them, and Manlius slew others who had laid aside their weapons and were clinging to the rocks with their hands. By this time others had joined him, and they began to dislodge the enemy with volleys of stones and javelins, till the whole body fell helplessly down to the bottom. When the uproar had died away, the remainder of the night was given to sleep, as far as was possible under such disturbing circumstances whilst their peril, though past, still made them anxious. At daybreak the soldiers were summoned by sound of trumpet to a council in the presence of the tribunes, when the due rewards for good conduct and for bad would be awarded. First Manlius was commended for his bravery, and rewarded not by the tribunes alone, but by the soldiers as a body, for every man brought to him at his quarters, which were in the citadel, 
half a pound of meal and a quarter of a pint of wine. This does not sound much, but the scarcity made it an overwhelming proof of the affection felt for him, since each stinted himself of food and contributed in honor of that one man what had to be taken from his necessaries of life. Next, the sentinels, who had been on duty at the spot where the enemy had climbed up without their noticing it, were called forward. Quintus Sulpicius, the consular tribune, declared that he should punish them all by martial law. He was, however, deterred from this course by the shouts of the soldiers, who all agreed in throwing the blame upon one man. As there was no doubt of his guilt, he was, amidst general approval, flung from the top of the cliff. A stricter watch was now kept on both sides, by the Gauls, because it had become known that messengers were passing between Rome and Veii, by the Romans, who had not forgotten the danger they were in that night. Chapter 48 Final Surrender of the Defenders But the greatest of all the evils arising from the siege and the war was the famine which began to afflict both armies, whilst the Gauls were also visited with pestilence. They had their camp on low-lying ground between the hills, which had been scorched by the fires and was full of malaria, and the least breath of wind raised not dust only, but ashes. Accustomed as a nation to wet and cold, they could not stand this at all, and tortured as they were by heat and suffocation, disease became rife among them, and they died off like sheep. They soon grew weary of burying their dead singly, so they piled the bodies into heaps and burned them indiscriminately and made the locality notorious. It was afterwards known as the Busta Gallica. Subsequently, a truce was made with the Romans and with the sanction of the commanders. The soldiers held conversations with each other. The Gauls were continually bringing up the famine and calling upon them to yield to necessity and surrender. To remove this impression, it is said that bread was thrown in many places from the capital into the enemy's pickets. But soon the famine could neither be concealed nor endured any longer. So at the very time that the dictator was raising his own levy at Ardea and ordering his master of the horse, Lucius Valerius, to withdraw his army from Veii, and making preparations for a sufficient force with which to attack the enemy on equal terms, the army of the capital, worn out with incessant duty, but still superior to all human ills, had nature not made famine alone insuperable by them, were day by day eagerly watching for signs of any help from the dictator. At last not only food, but hope, failed them. Whenever the sentinels went on duty, their feeble frames almost crushed by the weight of their armor, the army insisted that they should either surrender or purchase their ransom on the best terms they could, for the Gauls were throwing out unmistakable hints that they could be induced to abandon the siege for a moderate consideration. A meeting of the Senate was now held, and the consular tribunes were empowered to make terms. A conference took place between Quintus Sulpicius, the consular tribune, and Brennus, the Gaulish chieftain, and an agreement was arrived at by which one thousand pounds of gold was fixed as the ransom of a people destined ere long to rule the world. This humiliation was great enough as it was, but it was aggravated by the despicable meanness of the Gauls, 
who produced unjust weights, and when the tribune protested, the insolent Gaul threw his sword into the scale with an exclamation intolerable to Roman ears, Woe to the vanquished! Chapter 49. Camillus Saves Rome But gods and men alike prevented the Romans from living as a ransomed people. By a dispensation of fortune it came about that before the infamous ransom was completed and all the gold weighed out, whilst the dispute was still going on, the dictator appeared on the scene and ordered the gold to be carried away and the Gauls to move off. As they declined to do so, and protested that a definite compact had been made, he informed them that when he was once appointed dictator no compact was valid, which was made by an inferior magistrate without his sanction. He then warned the Gauls to prepare for battle, and ordered his men to pile their baggage into a heap, get their weapons ready, and win their country back by steel, not by gold." They must keep before their eyes the temples of the gods, their wives and children, and their country's soil, disfigured by the ravages of war, everything, in a word, which it was their duty to defend, to recover, or to avenge. He then drew up his men in the best formation that the nature of the ground, naturally uneven and now half-burnt, admitted, and made every provision that his military skill suggested for securing the advantage of position and movement for his men. The Gauls, alarmed at the turn things had taken, seized their weapons and rushed upon the Romans with more rage than method. Fortune had now turned, divine aid and human skill were on the side of Rome. At the very first encounter the Gauls were routed as easily as they had conquered at the Alia. In a second and more sustained battle at the eighth milestone on the road to Gabii, where they had rallied from their flight, they were again defeated under the generalship and auspices of Camillus. Here the carnage was complete. The camp was taken, and not a single man was left to carry tidings of the disaster. After thus recovering his country from the enemy, the dictator returned in triumph to the city, and amongst the homely jests which soldiers are wont to bandy, he was called, in no idle words of praise, a Romulus, the father of his country, the second founder of the city. He had saved his country in war, and now that peace was restored, he proved beyond all doubt to be its savior again when he prevented the migration to Vi. The tribunes of the plebs were urging this course more strongly than ever now that the city was burnt, and the plebs were themselves more in favor of it. This movement and the pressing appeal which the Senate made to him not to abandon the Republic while the position of affairs was so doubtful determined him not to lay down his dictatorship after his triumph. Chapter 50. The Rebuilding of Rome. Regulations Touching Religion. As he was most scrupulous in discharging religious obligations, the very first measures he introduced into the Senate were those relating to the immortal gods. He got the Senate to pass a resolution containing the following provisions. All the temples, so far as they had been in possession of the enemy, were to be restored and purified, and their boundaries marked out afresh. The ceremonies of purification were to be ascertained from the sacred books by the duumvirs. Friendly relations as between state and state were to be established with the people of Kyrie, 
because they had sheltered the sacred treasures of Rome and her priests, and by this kindly act had prevented any interruption to the divine worship. Capitoline games were to be instituted because Jupiter Optimus Maximus had protected his dwelling place and the citadel of Rome in the time of danger, and the dictator was to form a college of priests for that object from amongst those who were living on the capital and in the citadel. Mention was also made of offering propitiation for the neglect of the nocturnal voice which was heard announcing disaster before the war began, and orders were given for a temple to be built in the Nova Via to Ius Locutius. Note. A member of the plebs had reported that whilst he was in the Via Nova, he heard a voice more powerful than any human voice, bidding the magistrates be told that the Gauls were approaching. No notice was taken of this. End of note. The gold which had been rescued from the Gauls, and that which during the confusion had been brought from the other temples, had been collected in the Temple of Jupiter. As no one remembered what proportion ought to be returned to the other temples, the whole was declared sacred and ordered to be deposited under the throne of Jupiter. The religious feeling of the citizens had already been shown in the fact that when there was not sufficient gold in the treasury to make up the sum agreed upon with the Gauls, they accepted the contribution of the matrons to avoid touching that which was sacred. The matrons received public thanks, and the distinction was conferred upon them of having funeral orations pronounced over them, as in the case of men. It was not till after those matters were disposed of which concerned the gods, and which therefore were within the province of the Senate, that Camillus's attention was drawn to the tribunes who were making incessant harangues to persuade the plebs to leave the ruins and migrate to Vii, which was ready for them. At last he went up to the assembly, followed by the whole of the Senate, and delivered the following speech. Chapter 51 the speech of Camillus against migrating to Vi. So painful to me, Quirites, are controversies with the tribunes of the plebs that all the time I lived at Ardea, my one consolation in my bitter exile was that I was far removed from these conflicts. As far as they are concerned, I would never have returned even if you recalled me by a thousand senatorial decrees and popular votes. And now that I am returned, it was not change of mind on my part, but change of fortune on yours that compelled me. The question at stake was whether my country was to remain unshaken in her seat, not whether I was to be in my country at any cost. Even now, I would gladly remain quiet and hold my peace if I were not fighting another battle for my country. To be wanting to her as long as life shall last would be for other men a disgrace for Camillus, a downright sin. Why did we win her back? Why did we, when she was beset by foes, deliver her from their hands, if now that she is recovered we desert her? Whilst the Gauls were victorious, and the whole of the city in their power, the gods and men of Rome still held, still dwelt in, the capital and the citadel. And now that the Romans are victorious, and the city recovered, are the citadel and capital to be abandoned? Shall our good fortune inflict greater desolation on this city than our evil fortune wrought? 
even had there been no religious institutions established when the city was founded and passed down from hand to hand, still so clearly has Providence been working in the affairs of Rome at this time, that I for one would suppose that all neglect of divine worship has been banished from human life. Look at the alternations of prosperity and adversity during these late years. You will find that all went well with us when we followed the divine guidance, and all was disastrous when we neglected it. Take first of all the war with VI. For what a number of years, and with what immense exertions, it was carried on. It did not come to an end before the water was drawn off from the Alban Lake at the bidding of the gods. What again of this unparalleled disaster to our city? Did it burst upon us before the voice sent from heaven announcing the approach of the Gauls was treated with contempt, before the law of nations had been outraged by our ambassadors, before we had, in the same irreligious spirit, condoned that outrage when we ought to have punished it. And so it was that, defeated, captured, ransomed, we received such punishment at the hands of gods and men that we were a lesson to the whole world. Then, in our adversity, we bethought us of our religious duties. We fled to the gods in the capital, to the seat of Jupiter Optimus Maximus, Amidst the ruin of all that we possessed, we concealed some of the sacred treasures in the earth. The rest we carried out of the enemy's sight to neighboring cities. Abandoned as we were by gods and men, we still did not intermit the divine worship. It is because we acted thus that they have restored to us our native city and victory and the renown in war which we had lost. But against the enemy, who, blinded by avarice, broke treaty and troth in the weighing of the gold, they have launched terror and rout and death. Chapter 52 When you see such momentous consequences for human affairs flowing from the worship or the neglect of the gods, do you not realize, Quirites, how great a sin we are meditating whilst hardly yet emerging from the shipwreck caused by our former guilt and fall? We possess a city which was founded with the divine approval as revealed in auguries and auspices. In it there is not a spot which is not full of religious associations and the presence of a god. The regular sacrifices have their appointed places no less than they have their appointed days. Are you, Quirites, going to desert all these gods, those whom the state honors, those whom you worship each at your own altars? How far does your action come up to that of the glorious youth Gaius Fabius, during the siege, which was watched by the enemy with no less admiration than by you, when he went down from the citadel, threw the missiles of the Gauls, and celebrated the appointed sacrifice of his house on the Quirinal. Whilst the sacred rites of the patrician houses are not interrupted, even in time of war, are you content to see the state offices of religion and the gods of Rome abandoned in a time of peace? Are the pontiffs and flamens to be more neglectful of their public functions than a private individual is of the religious obligations of his house? Someone may possibly reply that we can either discharge these duties at VI or send priests to discharge them here. But neither of these things can be done if the rites are to be duly performed, not to mention all the ceremonies or all the deities individually, where else, I would ask, but in the capital can the couch of Jupiter be prepared on the day of his festal banquet? What need is there for me to speak about the perpetual fire of Vesta and the image, the pledge of our dominion, which is in the safekeeping of her temple? 
and you, Mars Gradivus, and you, Father Quirinus, what need to speak of your sacred shields? Is it your wish that all these holy things, coeval with the city, some of even greater antiquity, should be abandoned and left on unhallowed soil? See, too, how great the difference between us and our ancestors. They left to us certain rites and ceremonies which we can only duly perform on the Alban Mount or at Lavinium. If it was a matter of religion that these rites should not be transferred from cities which belong to an enemy to us at Rome, shall we transfer them from here to the enemy's city, V.I., without offending heaven? Call to mind, I pray you, how often ceremonies are repeated, because, through negligence or accident, some detail of the ancestral ritual has been omitted. What remedy was there for the Republic when crippled by the war with V.I., after the portent of the Alban Lake, except the revival of sacred rites and the taking of fresh auspices? And more than that, as though, after all, we reverence the ancient faiths, we have transferred foreign deities to Rome and have established new ones. Queen Juno was lately carried from V.I. and dedicated on the Aventine, and how splendidly that day was celebrated through the grand enthusiasm of our matrons. We ordered a temple to be built to Ius Locutius because of the divine voice which was heard in the Via Nova. We have added to our annual festivals the Capitoline Games, and on the authority of the Senate we have founded a college of priests to superintend them. What necessity was there for all these undertakings if we intended to leave the city of Rome at the same time as the Gauls, if it was not of our own free will that we remained in the capital through all those months, but the fear of the enemy which shut us up there? We are speaking about the temples and the sacred rites and ceremonies. But what, pray, about the priests? Do you not realize what a heinous sin will be committed? For the Vestals, surely, there is only that one abode, from which nothing has ever removed them but the capture of the city. The flamen of Jupiter is forbidden by divine law to stay a single night outside the city. Are you going to make these functionaries priests of Vi instead of priests of Rome? Will thy Vestals desert thee, Vesta? Is the flamen to bring fresh guilt upon himself and the state for every night he sojourns abroad? Think of the other proceedings which, after the auspices have been duly taken, we conduct almost entirely within the city boundaries. To what oblivion, to what neglect are we consigning them? The assembly of the curiers, which confers the supreme command. The assembly of the centuries, in which you elect the consuls and consular tribunes. Where can they be held, and the auspices taken, except where they are wont to be held? Shall we transfer these to V.I.? Or are the people, when an assembly is to be held, to meet at vast inconvenience in this city after it has been deserted by gods and men? Chapter 53 But you may say it is obvious that the whole city is polluted, and no expiatory sacrifices can purify it. Circumstances themselves compel us to quit a city devastated by fire, and all in ruins, and migrate to Vi, where everything is untouched. We must not distress the poverty-stricken plebs by building here. I fancy, however, Quirites, that it is evident to you, without my telling you, that this suggestion is a plausible excuse rather than a true reason. You remember how this same question of migrating to Vi was mooted before the Gauls came, whilst public and private buildings were still safe and the city stood secure. 
and mark you tribunes how widely my view differs from yours. Even supposing it ought not to have been done then, you think that at any rate it ought to be done now, whereas, do not express surprise at what I say before you have grasped its purport, I am of opinion that even had it been right to migrate then, when the city was wholly unhurt, we ought not to abandon these ruins now. For at that time the reason for our migrating to a captured city would have been a victory glorious for us and for our posterity, but now this migration would be glorious for the Gauls, but for us shame and bitterness, for we shall be thought not to have left our native city as victors, but to have lost it because we were vanquished. It will look as though it was the flight at the Alia, the capture of the city, the beleaguering of the capital, which had laid upon us the necessity of deserting our household gods and dooming ourselves to banishment from a place which we were powerless to defend. Was it possible for Gauls to overthrow Rome, and shall it be deemed impossible for Romans to restore it? What more remains except for them to come again with fresh forces? We all know that their numbers surpass belief, and elect to live in the city which they captured, and you abandoned, and for you to allow them to do so. Why, if it were not Gauls who were doing this, but your old enemies, the Iqui and Volscians, who migrated to Rome, would you wish them to be Romans, and you Veientines? Or would you rather that this were a desert of your own, than the city of your foes? I do not see what could be more infamous. Are you prepared to allow this crime and endure this disgrace because of the trouble of building? If no better or more spacious dwelling could be put up in the whole city of Rome than that hut of our founder, would it not be better to live in huts after the manner of herdsmen and peasants surrounded by our temples and our gods than to go forth as a nation of exiles? Our ancestors, shepherds and refugees, built a new city in a few years when there was nothing in these parts but forests and swamps. Are we shirking the labor of rebuilding what has been burnt though the citadel and capital are intact, and the temples of the gods still stand? What we would each have done in our own case had our houses caught fire, are we as a community refusing to do now that the city has been burnt? Chapter 54 Well, now suppose that either through crime or accident a fire broke out in V.I., and the flames, as is quite possible, fanned by the wind, consumed a great part of the city, are we going to look out for Fidenai, or Gabii, or any other city you please, as a place to which to migrate? Has our native soil, this land we call our motherland, so slight a hold upon us? Does our love for our country cling only to its buildings? Unpleasant as it is to recall my sufferings, still more your injustice, I will nevertheless confess to you that whenever I thought of my native city, all these things came into my mind, the hills, the plains, the Tiber, this landscape so familiar to me, this sky beneath which I was born and bred, and I pray that they may now move you by the affection they inspire to remain in your city, rather than that, after you have abandoned it, they should make you pine with homesickness. Not without good reason did gods and men choose this spot as the site of a city with its bracing hills, its commodious river, by means of which the produce of inland countries may be brought down and oversea supplies obtained, a sea near enough for all useful purposes, 
but not so near as to be exposed to danger from foreign fleets, a district in the very center of Italy, in a word, a position singularly adapted by nature for the expansion of a city. The mere size of so young a city is a proof of this. This is the 365th year of the city, Quirites, yet in all the wars you have for so long been carrying on amongst all those ancient nations, not to mention the separate cities, the Volskians in conjunction with the Iqui and all their strongly fortified towns, the whole of Etruria, so powerful by land and sea, and stretching across Italy from sea to sea, none have proved a match for you in war. This has hitherto been your fortune. What sense can there be, perish the thought, in making trial of another fortune, even granting that your valor can pass over to another spot? Certainly the good fortune of this place cannot be transferred. Here is the capital, where in the old days a human head was found, and this was declared to be an omen, for in that place would be fixed the head and supreme sovereign power of the world. Here it was, that whilst the capital was being cleared with augural rites, Juventus and Terminus, to the great delight of your fathers, would not allow themselves to be moved. Here is the fire of Vesta, here are the shields sent down from heaven, here are all the gods, who, if you remain, will be gracious to you. Chapter 55. The People Begin to Rebuild Rome. It is stated that this speech of Camillus made a profound impression, particularly that part of it which appealed to the religious feelings. But whilst the issue was still uncertain, a sentence opportunely uttered decided the matter. The Senate shortly afterwards were discussing the question in the Curia Hostilia, and some cohorts returning from guard happened to be marching through the forum. They had just entered the Comitium when the centurion shouted, Halt, standard-bearer! Plant the standard! It will be best for us to stop here. On hearing these words, the senators rushed out of the Senate House, exclaiming that they welcomed the omen, and the people crowding round them gave an emphatic approval. The proposed measure for migration was dropped, and they began to rebuild the city in a haphazard way. Tiling was provided at the public expense. Everyone was given the right to cut stone and timber where he pleased, after giving security that the building should be completed within the year. In their haste, they took no trouble to plan out straight streets. As all distinctions of ownership in the soil were lost, they built on any ground that happened to be vacant. That is the reason why the old sewers, which originally were carried under public ground, now run everywhere under private houses, and why the conformation of the city resembles one casually built upon by settlers rather than one regularly planned out. End of section 33. End of the History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Masfen Roberts.